The conviction this week of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd, an unarmed black man, has brought police violence and accusations of endemic racism back into the news. Floyd's death last summer sent shockwaves around the world and here in Britain, campaigners pointed to incidents of police violence against people of colour. One such case was the death in 2005 of Azel Rodney, a young black man killed in North London during a Scotland Yard operation against an organised crime group. Tony Long was the officer who shot him dead and later stood trial for Rodney's alleged murder, but was found not guilty at court. In the second part of my interview with the former Met Police marksman, we discussed the events surrounding the shooting of Azel Rodney and the split-second decisions firearms officers have to make. I've yeah. been involved in three shootings, the first mm. being 1985, which was the one I touched upon earlier, where I yeah. shot a guy in the head who was stabbing a little girl. He survived, and uh, that suspect came to trial about six months afterwards, and uh, we had no anonymity system at the time, and so I was named in court. I gave evidence in court, and so my name was splashed all over the newspapers as being involved in that shooting. And then uh, about 18 months later, in June of 1987, I was on a intelligence-led operation, you want to know what the Americans would call a stakeout, an ambush, call it what you will, on a information that a security van was going to get robbed in south-east London. And I confronted, together with my team, three suspects who were wearing balaclavas and were armed with uh, shotguns and a revolver. And as we shouted on police, they started to turn to face us. And so I shot all three suspects and, uh, and two of them died. And then finally... Obviously, just months before the 7-7 bombings in 2005, on the last day of April 2005, again in an intelligence-led operation, uh, this time a vehicle interdiction, I shot and killed a, a young man by the name of Azel Rodney, who was in a car with two other men with three guns and robbery equipment on their way to rob and kill drug dealers. Before we talk about the Azel Rodney case, because that was a, a long saga, if that's the right word, in your career... In 1987, you shot dead two 24-year-olds, Michael Flynn and Nicholas Payne, during a stakeout, as you say, robbery of a securical van in South London. Inquest found that both men were killed lawfully. Just explain, imagine it's something you, won't, you can't forget easily, how quickly you had to make a decision to shoot those men dead and how your training affected the speed with which you made that decision? Training is obviously all important. We didn't have specialist firearms teams. We were called PT-17 at the time. PT stands for personnel and training. So my job, first and foremost, was as a firearms instructor. And for four weeks out of six, I would run ranges and, and teach the 4,800 firearms officers in the Met how to shoot their revolvers and, and how to do tactics. And then for two weeks... In a six-week cycle, I would come together with my team and we would train for our operational role. So we were effectively, I suppose, what in America would be called a SWAT team. We would train whenever we got any spare time. Uh, we would certainly train you know, in between armed operations. So we would do a dedicated training week, one week in six. And we shot and performed to a very high standard. So if you don't have that degree of training and if you haven't you know, already 
answered the question in your head that you're prepared to do this type of work, then there's always the danger that you will hesitate. With the the case of Nicholas Payne and Michael Flynn, um, and, the, and the other suspect that I shot was a guy called Derek Whitelock, I came around the corner with a ballistic shield in my hand and a pistol, and I was confronted by these three guys, two of whom were partially obscuring a hostage, which was the security guard. Uh, Mickey Flynn was standing on his own. And as we started to shout on police, they all started to turn. So from them starting to turn, I don't know how long it was I took to fire, but it was probably less than a second, I would have thought, because I had three people turning to face me at once. I had to start engaging them before they could engage me. If I'd have started shouting on police and pointing my gun at, say, Michael Flynn in the hope that he would drop his gun, then I would have been vulnerable to the other two suspects. So I made the decision to shoot in a very short frame of time, probably about half a second. And it probably took me, I don't know, second, second and a half to fire the five shots that killed the two suspects and wounded the third. So these things happen very, very quickly. You know, it's not like in the movies where the music changes and the camera zooms in onto the bad guy's eyes and you can see them narrowing and you can see his hand hovering over his gun on his holster. It doesn't work like that. You know, action will always beat reaction. And sometimes, uh, and in law, you're quite entitled to do so. You have to act preemptively. You can't wait for the suspect to start to shoot at you before you make a decision to shoot at them. The most high-profile incident you were part of happened in April 2005, when you were involved in the fatal shooting of a young black man as L. Rodney in North London. That shooting became a cause celeb, with his family accusing the Met of disproportionate force against their son. I want to know what happened, and I want to know what, what led up to it, why the officer decided to shoot. You know, was he told? Did he just act? You know, there's so many different kind of um, controversial things surrounding it. But, you know, I just want to know what happened and why, and I have a right to know. The Met believed Azel Rodney was part of a gang, and that he and others in the car with him that day were armed. That's the information you had, wasn't it? The information was that these three suspects, they had access to guns or they were getting access to guns. They'd dealt with these Colombian drug dealers in Edgware before. They'd made purchases from them. But on this occasion, they were going to go along and they were going to rob them and then kill them. Clearly, they had to kill them because, you know, you don't go robbing Colombian drug dealers you know, and then leave them alive if they know you, because mm. you're going to end up with a with an unusual necktie, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So we went out on the ground, and the surveillance team were following suspects, but nothing happened. The information that we were getting, some of it was clearly coming from a technical source, uh, and that becomes quite important because, as you're aware, there's an act of Parliament called RIPA, which stands for the Regulatory Investigative Powers Act. What it means that is in this country, while it is legal to phone tap people's phones, if you have the correct authorities from a judge, you can't actually use the product that comes from listening to those phone conversations as evidence. So in other words, if you and I are planning to murder someone and we talk about it on the phone, even though that's been recorded and even though it's in the control of the police, that cannot be put in front of a jury. What we have to do as police officers is we have to follow the suspects, watch what they're doing, and build up as much intelligence and as much evidence as we can glean so that we can intervene before the murder takes place 
but with sufficient evidence to get a conviction. It's a very difficult tightrope that specialist police teams, investigative teams, detectives have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. In relation to the Rodney case, and the police were chasing Rodney's VW Golf, or say his VW Golf, the car he was in, with other gang members. They they weren't they weren't chasing him, and I'm not even sure the car appeared on the first day. Oh right. First day, it was all 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 the intelligence seemed to be coming from either a covert human intelligence source. Oh, I see. Or from some form of technical. And anyway, later in the day, I think Mm. we we came on about six in the morning, and about sort of nine o'clock at night, Mm. uh, the information was that the Colombians weren't prepared to wait any longer. The organised crime group that Rodney was a part of had been making excuses to them on the phone all day, saying, oh, we, we can't get the money together or just yeah, give yeah. us another couple of hours or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. And in the end, the Colombians said, ring us in the morning. You know, we, mm-hmm. we've got things to do. Mm-hmm. So the next morning we paraded again at um, about six o'clock. Uh, we loaded up our vehicles. We had our tactical briefing, which is you know roles and responsibilities within the team. We had a different team this time. We had an extra car and we had manpower resources from other teams. And that was partly because it was a weekend and some of our guys had booked leave in advance. And it was partly the reason we had an extra vehicle was because the intelligence build up the previous day indicated that there was a possibility that the suspects might have two vehicles, in which case we needed the capability to stop two cars Mm -hmm. rather than just one. Mm -hmm. So that's why we had a slightly bigger team. And we were also armed. The first day we just carried our personal issue MP5s on the second day. One of one member of each car was armed with a Hector and Cop G36556 carbine. And the reason that decision was made, it was made by the team leader, and it was because intelligence had been gleaned on the first day that they likely had access to fully automatic weapons. So it was seen necessary for us to match their degree of firepower. So then you're out on the road and, and surveillance spot the car? Rodney and two others were seen in this Volkswagen Golf and followed. They went to North London and they were seen by the surveillance team to be approached by a fourth person who handed a bag to them. The intelligence was that they then had the three guns that they were after and that they were on the way to rob these Colombians. So the the surveillance followed, took them from Harlesden towards uh, Edgware. We weren't able to catch up with the surveillance team or overtake the surveillance team because of the roads in that part of London until we got to the A1. When we got to the A1, we overtook the surveillance team. And so by the time we got to Mill Hill Broadway, we were a package of what we call gunships ready to do the stop. And at that point, we were given permission to do the stop. We turned into a road that was leading towards Edgware. Now, we didn't know exactly where the potential victims lived. We knew it was a flat somewhere near Edgware Station, but we didn't know exactly where. And so there was a big concern that if the suspects in the Gulf were to, you know, lose a set of traffic lights or something like that, the uh, Colombian drug dealers would get killed. And obviously we have a duty of care to Colombian drug dealers, so we couldn't let that happen. So a decision was made to do an interdiction. The lead vehicle, which we call the Alpha car, did an overtake and tried to block the uh, VW. I'm in the following vehicle, the Bravo car, and our job is to block the side of the suspect vehicle to stop it trying to manoeuvre past the Alpha car. And as soon as the Alpha car did the overtake, uh, from that point, it was about 10 seconds between then and me firing my first shot. Okay, hold, hold, sit. 
I had a clear and unobstructed view of Zell Rodney throughout that period of time. He was described by me and a independent witness that happened to be on the pavement. Our description of, of his behaviour was almost identical. He was looking over his left shoulder, he was looking over his right shoulder, and then pretty well as our vehicle approached, he ducks down across the back seat. And my belief at that point was that he was either trying to hide a gun or grab a gun. And as I pulled alongside, he'd, he'd sprung back up again and it was in an upright position but his hands were below the level of the door sill. So I couldn't actually see his hands, but I was absolutely convinced at that point that he had access to the information was that it was a Mac 10 fully automatic mm. submachine gun, a weapon that's capable of firing mm. about 1,100 rounds a minute. And so I felt I couldn't wait any longer. So I engaged him with a, a total of eight rounds uh, before I was satisfied that I'd actually stopped him. Of course, had he been standing out on the pavement when I shot him, I'd have probably only fired two or three shots and his body would have started mm. to fall and I would have realised mm. that he was stopped. But he was sitting in a car, on the back seat of the car. He had a seatbelt on. And what I didn't realise is that he was slowly sort of drifting towards me, sort of flopping towards me across the back seat. So I fired more rounds than I probably needed to, but that was because I didn't realise that my rounds were having any effect. Police found three guns and ammunition in the car. However, in their written tactics seen today, they said the plan was to arrest the men through armed interception. Why then was one man shot dead while two others were arrested? A bone of contention was whether you actually saw him with a gun or you thought he had a gun. I, I never for any, any moment said that I saw him with a gun. When the confusion right. came, and, it, and right. it always happens, is yeah. that somebody, and it wasn't anyone that was involved in the operation, but someone that was at the scene, probably somebody from the press bureau, said that he had been seen with a gun. Ah, right. I suspect okay. that that person from the press bureau had been told that a gun had been recovered underneath his body ah, right. on the seat, back right. seat of the car. And, of course, that makes us into liars. Uh, and, it's, and it's exactly the same with the shooting that sort of started the 2011 riots. Um, Duggan, Mark Duggan. Yeah, yeah. You know, invariably, it's, it's rumour and, and conjecture. And, and I think, you know, something to be learned. And exactly the same, you know, in, in, in a different vein with the incident that recently happened in Clapham. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important in this day and age, especially with body-worn cameras, yeah. that the police are allowed to tell their side of the story quickly because, you know, had they been able to do so, for instance, in the Mark Duggan case, if they hadn't been blocked off from speaking to the, to the press or anything by the IPCC, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the, the things that were said that, you know, caused the riots could have been put to bed in the early days. In relation to the Rodney case, it became obviously a big cause celeb, certainly for his family. You were yeah. cleared of any wrongdoing by the police watchdog, the IPCC, as it was then known, as I recall. Yeah. There was later a public inquiry... The IPCC investigated me for six months, and at the end of that, they said they'd, uh, that I'd acted correctly in accordance yeah. with my training. And I was reinstated to full operational duty, so that was about the November time of, of 2005. And uh, it went to the Crown Prosecution Service for them to review their, the IPCC's decision, and they decided in April of 2006 uh, that no charges would be brought. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of all of the issues around the Ripper evidence, our statements were so heavily redacted that the coroner said that he couldn't hold an inquest. Mm. And that left the government at the time with a problem on their hands. And so legislation had to be brought in 
that allowed a judge, I think it's called the Inquiries Act or something like that. Yeah. It allowed a high court judge to listen to the evidence without a, a jury being present. Mm. And so a 72-year-old retired high court judge with very little experience of crime cases listened to the evidence. And my feeling throughout the whole of it was that it was beyond his understanding that the police needed to shoot anyone ever. And uh, consequently, he decided that I'd acted unlawfully. It went back to the Crown Prosecution Service and about eight, nine years down the line, they decided that they were going to charge me with murder. And then finally, almost exactly 10 years after I'd shot Rodney, I faced a, a trial at the Old Bailey for murder. Mr Rodney's mother has waited 10 years and two months to see someone go on trial for his killing. Today she did, and she saw video of the moment it happened. Today the court was told that he fired a total of eight shots in 2.1 seconds. What was going through your mind generally when you were told you were going to face trial for murder, I mean, on a human level, but also at a professional level, the big implications for the police and for other police marksmen as well, weren't there? Absolutely. And I think if I'd been found guilty, you'd have found an awful lot of people handing their authorisation cards in because it was it was just... I've got to be honest, I never thought for one minute that I'd be convicted. When I heard that it was that there was going to be a, um, a judge-led public inquiry, I remember thinking to myself, oh, brilliant, you know, a judge, a professional, in, you know, intelligent educated man will listen to the evidence and he'll understand he'll get it he'll understand why it was that I had to do what I did and by that time I'd been on a jury and I didn't have an awful lot of faith that a butcher a baker a candlestick maker a school crossing lady and a you know a school teacher would have that degree of intelligence and knowledge to get you know why it was that I had to do what I had to do and then when that judge, after two years, two years of public inquiry, I don't know what he'd been doing for two years, other than, you know, creating a severe case of hindsight bias. But when after two years he decided that I was guilty, when I got told I was going to face a trial at the Old Bailey, I was actually quite positive about it. I thought, well, actually, you know what, perhaps some real people, you know, who go to work every day and don't live in a gilded cage, will actually understand, you know, that Zell Rodney wasn't a saint, as he'd been painted. He wasn't unarmed. Because the problem was, is that having said that we didn't see a gun in his hand, the press then described him as Azel Rodney, the unarmed black male shot by police. You know, they had three guns in the car. Tony, in your book, Lethal Force, My Life as the Met's Most Controversial Marksman, you said that police forces treat police marksmen like bastard sons and daughters. Was that, you know, what you had to go through in relation to the Azale Rodney case, is that proof as it dragged uh, on uh, and on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, when I joined the police, there were 4,800 firearms officers trained to a pretty low standard. There were six revolvers in the safe of every police station around London. And if, if something happened, there was a robbery, you, you know, you, you screamed back to the station, ran in, drew a gun and six rounds of ammunition and ran out and tried to deal with it. And you weren't even allowed to use the word gun. You know, if you were being shot at, you had to get on the radio and you had to ask for um, equipment to be brought to the scene. You know, the police hated the prospect of destroying the Dixon and Doc Green image, you know, that police officers might actually have to use guns. Yeah. And so, it, you know, everything about the police use of firearms, probably up until post 9-11 and actually probably post Paris, I think that the attacks around Europe by al-Qaeda has brought about this change now where armed policing is is seen as an acceptable 
face of policing. And, you know, we were quite used, certainly in the capital and big cities, of seeing armed officers. They've sort of come out from the shadows to such, a, to such an extent, actually, I think it's kind of gone completely the other way now. So now we've got a situation where, you know, we've gone from officers having to hide revolvers in pockets to, you know, guys and, and girls that are equipped as if they're, you know, going out on the, the streets of Kabul. It's gone to the extent now, you know, where we've got police officers overtly carrying high-velocity rifles and pistols, and, and that's fine. Uh, you know, after the way that officers responded to the incidents at, in London, specifically the attacks in Borough Market and the attacks on the bridge at, at London Bridge, people see the value of it now. They understand that there's a difficult job to be done. And the powers that be realise that, you know, they're not going to get roasted for allowing their officers to do what they, they've been trained to do. That said, I think there's still a lot to be done in relation to the way that they're treated not by the job, but by the IOPC, when police officers do do what they're trained to do, because at the end of the day, that's what they've done. You know, they haven't gone up, woken up that morning and gone, I'm going to go and murder someone today. Mm. They've been confronted by a situation and they've had to make a split-second decision based on their training. And for that, it would appear to most police officers that they're punished. You were unhappy, it's a matter of public record, when one of your senior officers, Deputy Assistant Commissioner Sue Akers, described you publicly as the Met's very own serial killer. That was a really bizarre story, well, she, Tony. Well, it, what, what made it more bizarre was that it wasn't public. It was said in the privacy of a police station. But oh. the way that it was leaked to the press some considerable time after it actually happened what, the way it was reported by the press, it was made to look as if it was just a bit of fun, a bit of casual banter by two police officers at a, a social event, which it absolutely wasn't. And it wasn't a banter between two police officers of a similar rank. You know, I was a constable and she was the commander, uh, probably about the third most senior policewoman in the Met at the time, if not second. And um, she was the commander in charge of the Directorate of Professional Standards. You know, she investigates wrongdoing by police officers. Mm. So there was this senior policewoman calling me a serial killer. And all it was is I'd gone up to her to ask if there was any news about my case because this was uh, round about April 2006, a year after the Azel Rodney shooting. While I was back at work, I'd been offered work with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to uh, protect government people mm. in places like Kabul and, and, mm. and the like. But I'd done all my training, I'd done my vetting, and I was just waiting for the all clear from the Crown Prosecution Service so that I could I could retire and go to work for the Foreign Office. And I just went up to her and I said, excuse me, Mum, you know, not spoken before, but you're involved in my case. And I just wondered if you'd heard anything. And she said, sorry, you are? And I said, Tony Long. And we're shaking hands by this point. And she said, um, ah, Tony, the Met's very own serial killer. And so I chose to ignore it. We spoke a little bit more and actually it was quite a pleasant talk and she was actually quite helpful but when we sort of said our goodbyes I said um, well I just thought it'd be a good idea to introduce myself now you've got a face to put to the name mm. and she said oh, I can't wait to go back to the office and tell everyone that I've met the Met's very own serial killer and I said to her I don't think it's a good idea you call me that mum do you and she said oh don't worry about that it's just a nickname we've got for you in the office now you know had she been an inspector or a sergeant, or another constable, I would have probably just ignored it. But she was, like I said, 
in charge of, if I'd have made an inappropriate comment and been disciplined, she'd be the person making decisions about, you know, whether or not I'd be sacked and whether or not I lose my pension. But she seemed to think it was appropriate to call me a serial killer. You got an apology, is that right? Uh, well, she wouldn't give a written apology, but I actually, part of the, uh, the process was that she agreed to sit down with me and give me a personal apology. And so it was just me and her in her office at Scotland Yard. And the first words out of her mouth was, well, I'm really disappointed in you. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, well, I thought, you know, more of you that, you know, making a big issue out of what was just a bit of banter. So I found myself having to sort of tell the commander in charge of Met's professional standards that she ought to be more professional. You got compensation uh, as well, is that right? It's been reported. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. You did. Yeah. So, you mean, you were vindicated in the end, but it's bizarre. But clearly, you were hurt by it. I still get that impression well, talking you know, to you it, now. It, it's, it's interesting because that just sounds like a casual throwaway, but it actually surfaced again at the trial. You know, Tony Long, who's nicknamed the Met's own serial killer. I had one article written where the Met Federation lawyer said you can't name him because he's, got, he's protected by an anonymity code for the shooting of Azel Rodney. Mm. And they said, well, we understand that he's called the Met's own serial killer. And the lawyer said, well, no, he's not. In fact, somebody was taken to task over that. Oh, well, is it all right if we just call him Tony then? So the agreement was that they would just call me Tony. Yeah. And when I opened the news the following day to see what they'd written, they said the officer, known in the black humour of his colleagues from the specialist firearms team as Dirty Tony, said blah, 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 blah. Mm. You know, so all of these things don't amount to much until you find yourself charged with murder and all of a sudden people go, well, he must be guilty because they nicknamed him that's own serial killer. They called him Dirty Tony. Mm. You know, people don't realise just how much damage can be caused and it happens all the time. You were cleared by a jury of murdering Azel Rodney. Yeah, yeah. That must have been a, a great relief for you, but you can never be certain, can you, with juries? I've seen juries rightfully convict people no. and I've seen them get it wrong in my humble opinion so you never you didn't know for sure I actually knew before the, the jury chairman gave his verdict because they'd been called in about an hour earlier because they couldn't make a decision mm. and the judge had got him up to say you know have you come to a decision that mm. you all agreed upon mm. and he said yes at which point everyone in the court looked puzzled particularly the judge mm. and uh, the other jury members are like tugging his coat and going, no, 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 we don't. And at oh. that point, you know, the judge uh, sort of broke the tension by making a little joke. And okay. about five members of the jury, mainly women, all looked at me and smiled yeah. and laughed. Yeah. So I kind of knew at that point that perhaps the majority of people were in my favour. And in point of fact, it was. It was a majority verdict. You've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright, with thanks to Tony Long, whose book, Lethal Force, My Life as the Met's Most Controversial Marksman, is published by Ebree Press.